Welcome to Of The People. I am Robert Chernin with my lovely co-host, Erica Red. Say hello. Hello, Erica. And she looks even better than she sounds. So, well, folks. You know, you got to come check us out on Rumble. Check out how good we look. I'm good looking, but Robert, today you look marvelous, darling. You look absolutely <laughs> marvelous. Before we get too far astray, folks, you want to stay with us for today's show. Second segment, we have Mark Meckler with us, president right. of Convention of States. This is important stuff, right? With all the dysfunction in Washington, there's a movement, some of you may know, I suspect some of you don't know, called Convention of States, Article 5 of the Constitution, to call a convention to try to limit the powers of the federal government. Mark's president, he was one of the founders of the Tea Party Patriots. Really, really great, you know, great movement. Stay with us for the second segment. Learn yes. about convention of states. Yes. Let's say you are. I say I uh, just for full disclosure. Full disclosure. I am a, a petition signer of of the uh, petition to encourage the Vermont State Legislature to pass the uh, resolution for a convention of states. So I am a fan girl. I just I, you know you know me. I'm all about full disclosure. Um, I've been a volunteer for Convention of States for years. I am currently the state videographer for Vermont. I was the legislative liaison years ago. Um, you know, wait, wait, wait I, a minute. I, I have to. I have to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, I would wager you that mm. you and I will be dead and buried before Vermont ever <laughs> signs on to a Convention of States. You want to talk about a pyrrhic gesture? You really think those flaming communists in Vermont are in the legislature? I mean, this is the state that has given us Bernie Sanders, right? The gift that keeps on giving. Oh, right? my God. So, it's so, so embarrassing. I, look, look, I applaud your enthusiasm. I applaud your patriotism. Um, yes. I'm not so sure I applaud your naivety about thinking Vermont <laughs> would ever sign hey, on that's to fair. this. That is, you know, okay. I will take okay. that. I will take that. I will, I will admit that I am a bit of an ideologue at times for sure. Oh my word. Uh, but I got to tell you, Robert, 4,000 new petition signers in Vermont in the last well, well, six well, months, see. I what's think. The, what, what's the state population? 600,000? It's like 16 people. So basically yeah, okay. that's everybody has signed and the petition. This, so is, this, this, this is your, these are all the Republicans <laughs> in Vermont folks who's all her extended family. <laughs> Literally. She made them an offer. She made them an offer they couldn't refuse. You're going to sign this paper. Or um, I'm going to come over there. And exactly. No, I'm kidding. So uh, <laughs> before we get to Mark in the next segment, so serious little uh, update on Go Woke, Go Broke, which Ooh. I want to jump in on, right? Because, you know, we, we've, been, we've been hammering that. And, folks, you're voting with your dollars. I love Keep it. Keep voting. But, by love the way, see it. by the way, Target is now in the tank for $17 billion. <gasps> Anheuser-Busch, they're even saying, may, may you know, go into bear territory, $15 billion. So you know what the word that comes to mind in all of this is for me? Consequences. Ooh. Because think about it. 
When you look at any segment of society, the problem with rampant crime is you can commit crime. There's no consequences. That's right. Right. You can defund the police. There's no consequences. No consequences. You can open your border and have people invade, basically invade your country. No consequences. That's right? right. And now you can, you know, obviously you can, well, up until now, you could put out whatever cultural woke crap you wanted in retail. And there were no consequences until now. Disney's feeling it, but 17 billion market cap, 15 billion market cap. You know what's coming next? What do you bet there's going to be a shareholder lawsuit from a couple of these corporations? Ooh, well, which you we know, haven't seen yet. I I'm really curious. That's a good question because one of the things when we're we're talking about the go woke, go broke stuff is right. um are the ESG scores, right? So we know that these- yeah, Tell them these, everybody what ESG is. Come on, what's ESG? Uh, oh my God, environmental, uh, uh, social uh, governance. Gover governance, okay. Right? Okay. You got it. I so, just wanted to put you on the spot. Thank you, good, that was good. Um, so basically, <laughs> the, the Black Rocks and the organizations like this make funding and things like that based on your ESG score, ex exactly how woke are you? And so now that there is, oh, and part of that push was what was called stakeholder capitalism. Do you remember that term? Never Do you remember heard that, that term. So, okay, so what, this What is term, stakeholder capitalism? So instead of shareholder capitalism, right, which is when you're the owner, right, you're an owner of the business, or you're a shareholder, you actually own shares of the business. They started pushing this idea of stakeholder capitalism, whereas basically anybody in the community around the business, anybody who shops at the business, everybody everywhere is now a stakeholder and therefore should have a say in how the business is run. And so that's, that was part of, oh God, that was, God, was that like six, seven, eight years ago? They really started that talking like about Obama. this. That sounds it like Obama. That sounds like Obama. It absolutely is. And then when the, um, when the third, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the third, um, oh my God, I'm going to say it wrong. Basically when Biden got elected. The third term of the Obama. The third term of Obama. That's what you call it. See, this is why uh, you need me. You I need, need you. me to help. See, I need to be needed. And this is why you need me to help you with this stuff. I'm pretty. Okay. I, you're the brains. I'm nah, the looks. Not so much. Well, you okay. are the looks. I don't know if I'm the brain. But okay. <laughs> I got it. No, but the, so, so this idea of stakeholder capitalism came into being really during Obama. And then they started pushing it again during the Biden administration, all this ESG stuff. It's the foundation of all of this ESG stuff. So now we're seeing the consequence of you saying that everyone has a say in how my business is going to be run, which, which, which is I'm going to let which, the woke mob decide what products I'm going to sell. Hey, go woke, go broke. I have no sympathy. Look, look, I don't even agree with the bank bailouts. I understand about the domino theory with banks and the financial solvency of the country. But at the end of the day, we have removed consequences. That's There's now right. starting to be some consequences, except of course, if you're in New York City and you commit a crime or do drugs, which, by the way, so you remember we were talking in New York City that they had this whole 
um, social service kiosk that if you were going to commit a crime, you were going to like, you know, log into the kiosk and you were going to get social service up that's going to prevent you from doing a crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. You ready for this? When you just thought it couldn't get any more stupid, New York City has put out vending machines for drug users, right? Where you can get uh, everything but syringes, right? You can get Narcan, you can, you can get a sniff kit, you can get a smoke kit. Uh, by the way, the smoke kit, if you want to smoke crack cocaine, they give you a free smoke kit. And they even give you lip balm in case your lips get chapped. I, you were, <laughs> oh my God, Robert, this is Look not it a up. thing. Erica, would I ever lie to you? Would I this ever lie not, to you? I can't. Like, I'm going to start rocking to <laughs> soothe myself right now. Oh my God. What? What? Oh, Vending machines? Are they, know, is it like the free? Yeah. Oh, well, that's the best part. It's free. Right? The only thing no, you have to enter. No, no. The only thing you have to enter is your zip code. <gasps> look at it, folks. Look it up. Um, and I hate to do this to everybody, but we're going to have to be really short in the first segment because we want to give our guest all the time he deserves, and he does deserve a lot of time. Oh my God! So we it, only got it, one it, outrage, we one only, outrage oh, moment. And I had so many of them lined oh up. Oh my God! Okay, it's just. But folks, we're going to come back to this concept of no consequences because it is the one thing that ties everything together. When you look at all the problem areas, it's all because we removed consequences. That's right. But like, if you piss off Erica, there are consequences, right? I know that. So that's why I'm also nice to her, right? But Erica, we're going to come back to the vending machine. But hey, folks, the nice thing about New York City is if you want to know where not to go, just look for the vending machines and don't go there. Because <laughs> <laughs> those they're putting them in the worst areas. Oh, oh, I, love you I love it. I love it. Folks, you can't are listening to Of The People. I'm Robert Chernin. I'm Erica Reddick. And stay tuned for Mark Meckler Convention of States. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Chernin. And I'm Erica Reddick. And we are of the people. You can find us on Rumble. You can find me on Twitter at RB Chernin. And? And I am at Erica Reddick. Look us up. You'll be entertained. That we guarantee. Absolutely. She's never wrong. Ever. <laughs> Just ask my husband. Please welcome back to the stage the president of Convention Estates, Mark Meckler. The last thing we can control is what we do. What we do. And I can tell you what we do as Americans. And I can tell you what we do as Texans is that we stand up. And no matter how many times we get knocked down, we stand up again. And no matter how many times we knock down, we get knocked down, we come back to the fight. I can promise you this for me personally. I can say this for everybody who got up on this stage today. And I think I can say it for all of you. There is a time that will come when I will quit fighting. And that time is when that first shovel of dirt hits the top of my damn pine box. And until then, I will fight. God bless you. God bless the state of Texas. And God bless the United States of America. Hello, and welcome back to Of The People. I'm Robert Chernin with my lovely co-host. Erica Reddick. Who's here. And we are thrilled, truly, to have with us Mark Meckler, president of Convention of States, one of the founders of the Tea Party Patriots, also an attorney, guys. Don't hold that part against him. But 
Mark, thank you for joining us on Of The People. Hey, really glad to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, we, we cover a lot of topics, but these are serious times. And I know the whole movement for convention of states, you know, to affect change to the Constitution, because if they won't do it in Congress, the only alternative, obviously, is to try to call a convention of states. And you have made a lot of progress since, is it 2012, 2013? August of 2013. It'll be 10 years this August 13th. Okay. And if you don't mind, can you just, for the, for the listeners who don't, who may not know what convention of states is, obviously it's tied to Article 5 of the Constitution. Give a quick background as to what conventions of states is trying to do, what, why it's important. Sure. So Article 5 of the United States Constitution contains the ways that we can amend our Constitution. There are two ways. The first clause of Article 5 says that when two-thirds of both houses of Congress want to propose an amendment, <laughs> excuse me, they can do so. And then that goes out for ratification by three-quarters of the states. In convention in 1787, George Mason pointed out a flaw. He said, if we only give that power to Congress, then they're never going to propose amendments limiting their own power or tyranny. So he proposed we had a second clause, which they did unanimously without debate, that says when two-thirds of states desire to call a convention, they can pass applications or resolutions through their state legislatures. And when two-thirds, or today 34 states agree, then the states can gather in convention to propose amendments. And then it goes back through the same ratification process, Thirty-four or 38 states, three-quarters of states have to ratify. So today... Convention of States, our organization where I'm president, exists to promote uh, a convention based around three subject matter areas, talking about, number one, term limits for Congress and for other members of the federal government, staffers, bureaucrats, the people we know as the deep state, judiciary. Number two, proposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, anything like a balanced budget amendment, tax caps or spending caps. And number three, scope and jurisdiction uh, restrictions on the federal government, which would be broadly described as power restrictions on the federal government. I really like that idea of 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 uh, term limits not being restricted to elected officials, but also every member of the federal government. I think uh, some of us might have liked that for a certain doctor who was in charge of things the last few years. Yeah, we call that the Fauci Amendment these days. <laughs> oh, is that part of the con- the Convention of States platform? Yeah, you can limit bureaucrats. And I think this is really important. First of all, I mean, I think largely the administrative state is a constitutional abomination. It shouldn't exist. I, I don't think that the Congress has the power to delegate lawmaking responsibility. And they've done that. But in lieu of that, we have to limit their power, but we should also limit their terms. They were never intended to be unaccountable bureaucrats, unelectable, completely unaccountable to the people serving for 40 years. That's part of the problem, part of the disease in Washington, D.C. And yeah, you could, for example, impose a limitation and say nobody can collect a paycheck from the federal government in the bureaucracy longer than 12 years or 15 years. Pick your term. And, and Mark, if I may, I'd like to add to that a suggestion that we public unions. Private unions are one thing. I mean, public employee unions, right? I think that's part of the problem. That's part of the entrenched bureaucracy that you're fighting against. Yeah. Not only do I I agree with that, Robert, but you look, the, the great conservative, I put that in air quotes, being ironic here, FDR said, 
that public uh, unions, unionization of public employees was fundamentally incompatible with public service. It's outrageous that exactly. we even have public employee unions. And the only reason that we have them is they are chartered by the federal government. And we could absolutely in this convention make those charters unconstitutional. Well, do me a favor, just add that to the list, because I think without that, because it's not just the bureaucrats and the administrative state are, are the employee, the rank and file that regardless of administration, stay there and they do what they generally want to do anyways. But you touched on something before I really uh, dive into the whole convention of states concept with you and how far along you are and where you need to get to is really, you know, the other issue really goes back to the Constitution about Congress's responsibility to pass clear laws. You know, we've talked in prior in prior episodes of the show, Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court Justice, wrote about where part of the problem is that Congress has delegated their responsibility through lack of clear laws to basically the executive branch or the administrative branch to, to implement, right? So is there anything in the Convention of States uh, geared towards Congress, or is it just um, a constitutional Congress to rewrite or or limit congressional powers that way? It would be anything that would limit the freedom of Congress or the president or the courts or the administrative agencies to do whatever they want. This is what would be known, broadly speaking, as a limiting powers convention. So, for example, and I do agree with you, I think we need to specifically limit the congressional power, which is largely now granted and authorized by the courts, it's not in the Constitution, to delegate lawmaking authority to agencies. So one thing that most people don't realize is when Congress passes a law and says, for example, they want uh, they want to regulate the waters of the U.S., generally speaking, the statute itself is not comprehensive. There's always what's called an enabling clause in there, and it says something like, the secretary shall, the secretary of whatever department they're empowering, shall make such laws as further the, the desires of this, this uh, act that we're passing. And, and so what that means is then you have the secretary of a particular cabinet department deciding what the rules and regulations should be. That secretary is unaccountable to the American people. In a lot of cases now, they're passing laws, they're serving as judge and jury, and then they decide on punishments. In my opinion, this is completely unconstitutional, and you could absolutely stop that process with a convention. Got it. So, so one last point before we really dive in, uh, and Eric, I know there's a couple things you want to bring up as well. So I know that in the next Supreme Court session, they're going to take on what we call the Chevron decision. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And the Chevron decision, for those listening, is where the courts, it's an egregious, frankly, ruling in my opinion. But the courts basically uh, have left it up to through the Chevron decision to the administrative agencies, i.e. in the executive branch, to interpret and essentially what I would say is make law. So we'll see if what the Supreme Court does with that Chevron ruling, and that may, Mark, speak to exactly what I think what you're talking about. Yeah, and I'd love to jump in there for a second. I have to explain this a lot to folks. The Chevron doctrine actually said that if, and I'm going to give an extreme example, that if an agency passed a regulation that said that the sky is blue, and then later on, they just made a decision saying, well, what that really means is that the sky is green, then you are bound by their interpretation. It's not required to be reasonable. It's great uh, deference. It's called the Chevron deference doctrine. So it says that an agency has the right to interpret their own regulations, and it, it doesn't even have a requirement of reasonableness. Over the last couple of sessions, the Supreme Court has pared back Chevron deference, 
and there is a possibility that they're going to overturn this, what that does is it opens up a lane of litigation for private litigants, big companies, individuals to challenge the regulatory scheme imposed on them and the interpretations imposed on them by the agency. So I think this is an excellent pruning back of the administrative state. I think um, if you could, Mark, just for a second, because see, so as much as we'd love to pick on lawyers, this is the benefit of your legal background. Um, You explain reasonableness. Okay. Because I don't think a lot of Americans understand that using the word reasonable, reasonable person, things like that, when you, when it comes to interpreting law or, um, passing down judgment, can you explain a little bit about why that word is so important and what it means? Yeah. And you know, there's a long history of what's called the reasonable man standard, this goes back to common law in England. We brought this over to the colonies with us. It's the idea of just what would just a normal average person thinks think this means. So in other words, I gave the, a ridiculous example that the agency says the sky is blue and then later on they say the sky is green. And so if you as a reasonable person were to read the language, it says the sky is blue, then you would say, okay, well, they're trying to regulate the sky being blue. And when they come back and say the sky is green, well, no reasonable person would believe that. And what the courts had done with Chevron deference is said, well, it doesn't really matter what an average normal person would think. We're going to defer to the agency because the agency is the expert here. And what it really did effectively is it made it possible for these agencies to essentially do anything they wanted under any regulation because the deference that the benefit of the doubt was provided to the agency, not to the reasonable person. The reasonable person standard is a very important standard in British common law, in American law. And in a lot of cases, we've abrogated that standard. We need to go back to that standard a lot more. I would absolutely agree with that. That is just sometimes I hear these court decisions or I hear about these uh, choices being made by the administrative state, you know, what we, you might, you might call the deep state, the administrative state, the unelected fourth branch of government. And you just go, how, how did we get here? This is absolutely outrageous. And I think that's why a convention of states is so attractive to the American people right now and why Um, I know you're seeing a lot of energy. I know Vermont has seen a huge increase in petition signers recently, the more they are unreasonable and kind of going off of the cliff. Yeah, look, I think one of the reasons we see the increase in enthusiasm generally is regardless of what party you belong to, what your sort of uh, ideology, political ideology is, very few people believe that DC is running well. Very few people believe that DC isn't off the rails. And so you have this broad consensus in the American body politic that DC is out of control. It doesn't relate to the American people anymore. We can't relate to them and that we need to take power away from them and give it back to the people. It's not a partisan issue. There's no actual policy contained in the idea of calling this convention of states. The prime idea in a convention of states, the one that we're proposing, is that there should be a debate in the United States of America about where the power resides, who makes the decisions. So we ask the question, who decides? The average American left, right, and center all say, I should decide about my own life, or if it has to be decided at a government level, maybe it's local, 
maybe a state, but very few people would say, well, we love when the federal government decides for everybody. You, know, you make you make a good point. Obviously, quoting Ronald Reagan, the larger the size of the federal government, the less freedoms we have. And I think that's on steroids at this point. But I want to get back to the actual mechanics of this, if we can, for a second, Mark. So the, um, the um, fifth clause, the Article 5 of the Constitution is, what, 140 words? Yes, yeah, the shortest clause. Shortest clause. And if you take out the last two pieces, you know, last two parts, one about direct taxes and the other about slave trade, right? I think you're down to 90, 90 words, right? So it's a very small, um, there's a lot of ambiguity as to how this would function. So mechanically, how would this process go forward? Because, because obviously, look, there's only two ways to amend the Constitution. One would be if it was proposed in the Senate, well, both houses, bicameral, would have to propose it. Um, I think it's two thirds and then three quarters of the states would have to pass it. Correct. Or you can do what I call an end around, which is what I think this convention of states is, because Congress is not going to abrogate its own its own power base or its own power. So how would this work in in terms of logistics, a a real convention of states? Because I know you did a mock convention of states in Williamsburg a couple of years ago, I think, or but how so how would it work? Yeah, I mean, so for folks who want to see that, they can go to our website and they can look up the simulation. They can see at least six hours of video from it. Uh, And then we're going to be doing another one here at the beginning of August back in Williamsburg. Again, we're going to repeat that and bring in delegates from all over the country. Basically, the way it works, though, is once you get to 34 states uh, that have aggregated their applications, aggregated is a legal term, meaning all the applications are the same. Uh, in our case, those three subject matter areas I described, once you get to 34 states, then it says Congress has a role and the role is limited to something us lawyers call ministerial or secretarial, it means it's non-discretionary. They have to call the convention, they have to call it on those terms, and they have to name the time and place. I believe because it's D.C., they're going to name the place as Washington, D.C. The convention itself, once it convenes, will have the ability to reconvene anywhere they want from talking to state leaders and legislators all over the country. They'll probably reconvene somewhere like Kansas City or Dallas or Oklahoma City, somewhere in the middle of the country. Uh, And then once they convene, they're going to discuss these three subject matter areas. Now, one of the questions that comes up is who goes to convention? Well, one of the things I love about this is it's purely federalist. Every state will decide their state legislature will be in charge of choosing delegates and how the delegates get chosen. It could be everything from a public election to a certain number from each house. A lot of the states are now passing what they call delegate selection acts. These are actually pieces of legislation that determine how delegates get selected, generally, again, still within the control of the legislature. When they get to convention, when they send their delegation, they can send as many people as they like, but each state gets one vote. So whether it's California or Rhode Island, the states are going to have the same vote. So, so my question is, how? Because obviously, like, look, ninety words, right? And I think we're bringing in the you know Tenth Amendment to the Bill of Rights. I is when I think I'm hearing right. If it's not, if the power is not specifically enumerated to be the federal government's by omission, I'll have the Tenth Amendment to the Bill of Rights. It then resides with the state. So, am I right on that so far? Yeah, I think you're right on that, but I think also that the uh, the Article Five is very clear in its de- direct delegation of power to the states, and not Congress. And also, if you look at the history, if we're going to be originalists, which I assume all three of us are, when sure. we look at is we look at convention and what did they intend when they did this, and they said very clearly to us that they intended for the federal government not to be involved. 
Colonel George Mason stood and he said, are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? And then he proposes, as you called, an end around not only Congress, Congress, the president, the courts, everything. He wants the states, when he proposes this, to be able to stand up in the alternative and say, hey, you guys are out of control and we retain the power to fix it. So, so I guess my question, and I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times is the concern of a runaway convention, yep. right? Because obviously for the, those people who don't know their history, and that's our American history, which is most people, unfortunately, today. A lot today, of people, let's be real. Right, a lot of people. Um, it's one of the things Eric and I are talking about is doing a man-on-the-street segment where we take the camera and ask people what they actually know about either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. But we, we're still trying to find a bodyguard to come with us because we don't <laughs> think the response is going to be really good. But um, especially in Austin, I'm happy to go with y'all. Well, well, we just want the guys. We we want a couple of the IRS guys that are carrying guns to come with us just to protect us. Hey, this is Texas, Robert. We're all carrying guns. Um, uh, Full disclosure, I I live in the live for your die state of New Hampshire. We want all those guys in the city to come up here and and try all that stuff up here. We will give you a a nice welcome. Oh, a warm upstate welcome for you. <laughs> yeah, they won't. Well, first of all, they're not going to come in the middle of winter because because they're pansies. They, you know, they can't handle the cold. But serious question. Obviously, yeah. the three of us all know uh, Declaration of Independence, um, 1776. Then we had the Articles of Confederation for 11 years. And that the Constitutional Congress that was called in 1787 to reform the Articles of Confederation essentially exceeded their mandate, and they said, hey, this isn't working, we're going to throw it out and write a constitution, and that's been 230 years. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because there is some concern. I mean, obviously, yeah. I've like you've been in politics a long time. A lot yeah, of look, I mean, first people of all, support it. But first of all, I'm going to push back, and you're going to find this fascinating as a guy who loves history, that 1787 was absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably not... Uh, runaway convention. They did not exceed their authority. If you read the actual commissions of the commissioners that attended convention, all but two of them contain a phrase somewhat similar to this, almost identical. It says, the commissioner has any and all authority to propose anything necessary to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. There's no limitation on their power. Madison says, when talking about the convention, if you want to know the authority of the commissioners at convention, read their commissions. There's a definitive law review article written uh, on this. It's it's roughly 100 pages written by Michael Ferris, fully footnoted. He's been through all the histories, all the commissions. Uh, I have the entire history of the ratification of the United States Constitution sitting on my library shelf back there. I've read all the ratification debates. There's no objection to the process used. Nobody's talking about a runaway convention in 1787 or 1789 by the time of ratification. This is something, Robert, that was invented later and primarily invented by the radical left in America to prevent folks like us from using the Constitution to save the Constitution. So I can provide you with all those citations. You don't have to believe me. All that stuff is on our website. 1787 was not a runaway convention. And I would say this, and this is really important. We need to remember who those men in convention were. And I think all of us would say that we broadly revere them as some of the wisest people in the country's history. More importantly, some of the most honorable, not all of them, they're human beings, they're sinners, they're flawed, but some of the most honorable. At that time in American history, if you if somebody said something that was a challenge to your honor, then 
in most states, you had the absolute right to challenge them to a duel. I mean, we all know the Hamilton Burr duel is over matters of honor. Sure. You could kill somebody for accusing you of not living up to your duty. Now, imagine George Washington presiding as president of the convention. Imagine Madison and Adams and all these men sitting in convention and they all just say, you know what? We know we have limitations, but we're just going to blow all that stuff off. It's a slander on the founders and the framers. I'll spend the rest of my life defending them from that slander. Wow. Mark, why do you think, okay, we know that the radical left wants to destroy everything that we have, right? Uh, uh, Let me not be hyperbolic, okay? They want to destroy our foundations. They don't like our rights, our liberties, our duties or responsibilities. So why do you think there is this push if they want to destroy the constitution and institutions and foundations anyway, why do you think there's this opposition from leftist groups like Soros or, you know, other sort of opponents? Well, so, so let me, I'm going to back up and I'm going to merge. Uh, so I answered half of Robert's question uh, and then I'm going to oh, merge sorry. the answers to these two questions if I could. Yeah. So the idea of a runaway convention really comes into the mainstream of the American lexicon pro or post Roe versus Wade, 1973. What you start to see is a bunch of states rise up and propose article five applications, pass applications for a convention to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so ultimately they get to 20 states, right? Where we're at right now, it's a pretty serious movement. And at some point in the early eighties, Chief Justice Warren Berger and Phyllis Schlafly from Eagle Forum have a written exchange. And Schlafly asks Berger, might recognize that name because he signed Roe versus Wade. What do you think of the idea of a convention that people are pushing? And what do you think he's gonna say? That's the seminal decision of his career. He says, oh, we might have a runaway convention and lose our beloved constitution. Again, this is all public record. This is not Mark just saying this stuff. And immediately law professors at Harvard and Yale write articles about the runaway convention. This is not something that's been a conservative idea. It's not something that's been an idea at all in the American body politic. It is invented specifically by the radical left to prevent the right from using a convention of states. And there is a through line through American history since the late uh, 1970s, early 1980s of being against a convention of states. And in fact, about five years ago on Good Friday, a group led by Common Cause and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, both George Soros funded groups, got together and they now have a coalition of over 250 leftist groups that have signed a press release against the idea of a convention of states. And this is the baddies. This is the worst of the worst. It's Planned Parenthood. It's La Raza. It's MoveOn.org. It's Daily Cause. It's the Socialist Party of America. You know, like every nasty left-wing, America-hating, baby-killing group you could think of has signed on to this press release. And so this is what stuns me when conservatives say, well, you know, conservatives are worried about this. Well, there are some on the edges of the conservative movement that are, but they've been duped by the radical left in America. The radical left is entirely united against this. I can tell you, for example, Russ Feingold back in October wrote a book against this, attacking this, saying exactly what we're doing, trying to limit the administrative state, trying to create a smaller government. He just said it's all a terrible, horrible idea. Hillary Clinton spoke out against it. Howard Dean spoke out against it. The left (laughs) is unanimous in its condemnation. And if they thought it could be a runaway convention and they could get control of that and destroy the Constitution, clearly they would be supporting the idea. 
You know, you know what, Mark? I need you, I need to hold you there because we're getting a sign from our producer. Amongst other things, we're bourgeois capitalists, so we do have to go to break, make some money. But can you stay with us for the next section? I want to continue pick up where we left off. This is fascinating, and this is really important. Glad to do it. Folks, we're with Mark Meckler, president of Convention of States. Stay tuned. He'll, he's going to stay with us. We'll be right back. Tired of seeing your rights stripped away by the politicians in Washington who don't care about you or me? Do you feel like a red dot in a pond of blue dots and feel disconnected? It's time to get connected. The American Center for Education and Knowledge is fighting back to restore America. Get connected. Go to ASICFund.org. That's A-C-E-K-F-U-N-D.org to learn more. Do it now. Hey everybody, Erica Reddick, also known as Generally Irritable. Special shout out and thanks to our Of The People radio and podcast listeners and to our Rumble viewers. We sort of had to give up on YouTube a little bit because uh, they don't like the things that we say. So you guys make sure you go check us out on Rumble. And also while you're there, go ahead, click subscribe, follow, generally irritable. You hear Robert and I talk about it a lot and you might ask yourself, what's the difference? Well, at Generally Irritable, we're not just covering news and politics, but we're talking about how news and politics intersects with culture. We get to go to live events like the How Many More rally at the Austin Capitol, America Fest hosted by Turning Point USA. Talk to and interview some of your favorite pundits, politicians, and podcasters to see what they think about where we are at in the American experiment today. Why do we do it? Because we believe that an engaged and informed electorate is the best way to save the American Republic. You'll even find cameos from our producer, uh, Lord Benjamin, AKA Lord Violence, AKA a darker perspective. That's where you can find him on Twitter. You can find me on all of the socials under Generally Irritable, literally all of them. Twitter, you're gonna find me as Erica Reddick, E-R-I-C-K-A-R-E-D-I-C. And most importantly, engage, because we need you to overcome the evil big tech overlords. You gotta share, you gotta comment, you gotta like, you gotta hit that rumble button. Hello, and welcome back to Of The People. I'm Robert Chernin with... Erica Reddick. Last time I checked. And staying with us, and thank you so much, is Mark Meckler, president of Convention of States and longtime patriot political player in, in D.C., although he's smart, he doesn't live in D.C. Uh, he lives in, in the real America, which is, we won't give you your location, but it's, it's one of the... It's, one of the states that's seen a lot of population growth lately. Can't imagine why. Mark, thank you for staying with us. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for the discussion. Absolutely. I, I want to jump back into this whole the, the, the machinations of convention of states. Mm. And we, we left about, you know, the runaway convention concept. And I think you addressed that really well. Yeah. I guess one of the concerns, because obviously 
the Democrats, um, capital D, uh, and the progressives, while they are ardently against a convention of states for the reasons you laid out, from my perspective, one of the concerns is if they can't beat it, and let's just, let's assume you get X amount of states, right. you need two-thirds states, correct? Yeah, that's correct. 34 states. And how many do we have so far? 20. Okay, so at some point, I'd love to see the list of the, of the next 14 that you think are going to yep. fall, because that's where we need to put our efforts. But let's assume we get to that point, and hopefully we do. Then the question is, how do you prevent the convention, maybe not be a runaway convention, but in today's uh, social media, uh, information technology, uh, we can even bring in chatbot and all those other in- things that are now, um, reality is hard to determine sometimes. How do we not lose control of that process? Maybe we don't call it a runaway convention, but there's going to be people who are going to try to either uh, mm. take out certain protections that are there. I mean, how do we control the process in real terms? Yeah, look, I, I would say, first of all, we rely on the framers of the Constitution. Remember, they went through this exact same thing in convention in 1787. There were people who tried to derail it. There were people who tried to derail it during ratification. You had the media was involved. You had the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Most people think of the Federalist Papers and they think of some erudite scholarly paper. These were newspaper articles written under pseudonyms. And so that debate was going on in the public. Uh, People were making scurrilous claims about each other. So all of that was taking place back then. So they built a structure for today that could absorb all that. And and let me explain what I mean. You know, people are worried about a runaway convention. So I'm going to sort of lay out a scenario because, Robert, you said I've heard this a thousand times. I think it's probably closer to 10,000 at this point. (laughs) The one that I hear most often, and I understand this, I'm, I'm a big advocate of the Second Amendment. It supports the rest of the Constitution. It helps keep a tyrannical government in line. I hear that we're going to lose the Second Amendment and that people are going to come to this convention. And let's say from California, where I used to live, I would not be surprised at all. In fact, I'd be shocked if they don't propose the repeal of the Second Amendment. Number one, it's not germane to convention, which means anybody from any conservative state Today, there are 30 states with both houses controlled by Republicans could raise their hand, raise a point of order like in any legislature. This will operate just like a legislature and say that's out of order. And then it'll be up to the chairman and the parliamentarian to make a ruling. Now, I think you're going to have a dominant number of states that have called the convention for these limited purposes. 34 states are required, likely be ruled out of order. Let's say I'm wrong. Who knows what the chairman does? Who knows what the parliamentarian does? And they debate it. Now you got to get 26 states to say that they want to propose a convention or uh, an amendment to repeal the Second Amendment. Let's remember today, 24 states, actually, sorry, now 26 states as of Florida have constitutional carry. You don't even need a permit to carry your weapon. And 24 states allow you to carry your weapon in the legislature. I've done it in most of those legislatures. And you actually have 14 states where you can take a long gun, put one in the chamber, throw it across your back on a sling and walk in and watch the proceedings. The idea that you could get 38 states to ratify that or 26 states to pass it out of convention is ridiculous. And and when I say ridiculous, I want to be really clear what I mean. It's outrageous. It's stupid. It's fantasy. It's not real. And I'll make an offer to your viewers, which is if you believe that they could repeal the Second Amendment or if you think there's a an amendment that you as a conservative wouldn't like, then list the 38 states that will ratify that amendment. You can send that directly to me at mmeckler at cosaction.com. 
And if you list the 38 states and you make a legitimate argument, I'll pick up the phone and I'll give you a call and we'll have a conversation. I've made that offer now for 10 years straight to literally millions upon millions of people, Hannity, Levin, Shapiro, all the shows. I've never received an, an email because it takes only 13 states to stop anything that might make it out of convention that you or I wouldn't like. Good point, Erica. That's a that is a that is a pretty darn good argument. I'm just sort of shocked that you can walk into any legislature with a gun loaded. Hey, so you know, Erica, you're you're. I know that you know and love Texas. Uh, if you go to the legislature in Texas, you know you're not required to have a permit, but if you happen to have a concealed carry permit, which you need for reciprocity with some other states, they have a fast pass lane at the Texas legislature. You don't have to wait in line. You go up, they scan your permit, you walk right in with your handgun. <laughs> I actually did not know that. All right. I, uh, this is, okay, this is just as an aside. I remember when there was a bunch of protests going on, you know, a few years ago at various state legislatures, D.C., and all the news reporters were clutching their pearls and upset. Oh, all these people carrying. Oh, they got guns. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. The Second Amendment is not for hunting or protecting any kind of a culture. The Second Amendment is to make sure that our elected officials remember their place. So if they feel threatened, uh, you know... Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but, uh, I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think they should have a healthy fear of the people you are governing, because if you believe that you know better and you're going to continue to overreach and take rights away, it says in the constitution, it is our duty duty and responsibility to do something about it. Yeah, I actually, I actually think that's in the declaration, by the way, of independence. It is in the declaration, but, but I want to address something you just said, Erica, which, which I think is interesting because you said that you want that the government should be uh, afraid of the people. I think the government is afraid of the people. I think that's why we are where we are. I think when you look at Brexit, when you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, when you look at the whole Trump phenomenon and the reason Trump was such a threat, not just to the deep state, so to speak, but it was the, it was a, it's the, I don't, I won't say that Trump is, is the successor to the Tea Party movement. I wouldn't insult the Tea Party movement that way. And I'm a big, you know, I'm a supporter of Trump and, yep. and, and Mark, I obviously know your background and how um, cent, uh, central you were to that movement um, in its, in its, you know, founding. But I think Erica, that, that's exactly why we are where we are. That's why this whole divide and conquer thing, right? If you yeah. keep people worried about their job, if you keep them worried, if you divide them worried into small boxes other. and you have them fight each other, yep. then the elites and the people who think they know better, whether it's the administrative state or not, doesn't, you know, their power, their power is, is, is safe. But um, so, Mark, I, I want to ask you sort of a, a different kind of question. I, I, I understand all this, and I think it's hugely important what you're doing and, and want to know sort of you think the next three or four states are they're going to sign on but uh, if you're willing to go on record yeah. uh, but i guess my question is a more conventional way no pun intended to do this might be to get take each of those three things and try to get 
Congress to pass them, right? So rather than, because I understand now a little better than I did before about the process and, and sort of the fail-safes, right. I think, that are in place, why not go through the traditional amendment process in Congress and try to get the legislators to propose congressional um, amendments to the Constitution that way? Look, I mean, I think in theory, that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and I, I guess I would ask you a question in response, Robert, which is, what do you think the odds are of Congress passing a balanced budget amendment or a term limit <laughs> amendment or anything that takes their own power away? And, and that's sort of rhetorical, but I'll answer it for you in terms of human nature, which the framers understood well, which is people don't voluntarily limit their own power. I mean, we have very few examples in history. George Washington was asked to be a king, and he said that that was outrageous. But if you want to go through history, try to find examples of tyrants, people who've overstepped their reach, overstepped their legal bounds, saying, you know what, I think I might be outside of my bounds, and I'd like to give power back to the people, or I want to give power to somebody else. That's just not human nature. In the 1980s, by the way, uh, they, we were very close to calling a convention on term limits. We got to 32 states. Uh, and yet the state started to push back. We had a term limits amendment that was proposed in Congress. You can watch the video of this online as they cheer in Congress as that proposed amendment is defeated by a single vote. They're never going to pass it. It takes two thirds of both houses. We can barely get 50% of either house to get two thirds of both houses to agree to limit their power. I'd say we'd be waiting for all of eternity. Okay, fair enough. So in this process, I mean, do you, do you think that you will be successful in getting a convention of states called? And if so, how long? I mean, I'm, no one's going to hold you. Well, it's going to be three days and two, you know, <laughs> three years and two months and in, in one day. Yeah. But I mean, how far out is this process going? Who do you think the next states are that are going to sign aboard this? And, and realistically speaking, if you had to prognosticate, you would think that a convention of states would be called if you're successful by the year 2028. I'm making this up, of course. Yeah. You, I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I want to say it's really hard. <laughs> this has taken a long time. It's, it's a lot longer than I would like. I've been at it 10 years, but this is what the framers intended. In other words, they didn't want it to be easy to amend the Constitution. This is a big deal, right? You're going to go in and you're going to amend the founding charter of the United States of America, the base code of the United States of America. That's a big deal, and it should be really hard. It should take years. It should take a national consensus. It should take millions of people. So while I get frustrated on a human level sometimes, I think this is how the process was intended to work. Are we going to get there? Yep, we're going to get there. And the reason I say we're going to get there is it's kind of an either or. If we can't take power away from Washington, D.C., then Washington, D.C. is going to crash the country. And we just saw this in the debt ceiling debate. Even at its best, the plan that was proposed by the Republicans before they caved in and, and gave a bunch of it away wasn't going to do anything to fix any of these problems. And you can look back through all of American history, and by all, I mean all, go all the way back to the founding, Washington, all the way through to the current administration, every administration, except for Calvin Coolidge's administration Calvin has Coolidge. grown the government. And so that's the only way we're going to do it. So yeah, I think we're going to get it done. When we get it done right now, I'm saying 2028, maybe 2030. I say those numbers because we have to make it through enough electoral cycles. We currently have 30 states with both houses controlled by Republicans. 
I'll be working to help flip Virginia. Their House of Delegates flipped in the last cycle. It's up this year for their Senate. So I'm hoping we can finish that off and flip Virginia. And then there are a few other states we're going to have to flip to get to 34, because I don't think any Democrat states are going to pass this. I was going to ask you that. Is there a, Dem is there a state whose legislature is controlled by the Democrats that have signed on board? No, none. Uh, but to what be fair, that, what, does that, what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, we are seeing more God and more us. Democrats in in states either controlled by Republicans or Democrat states who are coming on board with convention of states. There, it's really important that we we couch this properly. It's not a partisan thing. It's partisan in the sense that I'm a conservative. Mike Ferris, my co-founder, is a conservative. A lot of the people who stood up for it, uh, Mark Levin did a whole show on it this week. He's a conservative. But the reality is all we're saying is take the power away from D.C. and give it back to the states. That means that a very liberal state like California, a liberal state like Vermont or Connecticut, these are states would have more power under uh, the Constitution post convention of states that we're proposing. So it's not about giving conservatives more power or giving liberals more power. This is truly just about restoring federalism. I right, just want to make sure every... Know. I want to make sure everybody heard, though, in that last statement, Calvin Coolidge, Vermont president. I'm silent just saying, cow. I'm just saying. He was effective because he My was man. silent. I just want to put that out there. Um, I, I wish our current president was, was silent. Actually, I wish <laughs> the president two presidents ago who was on the verge of transforming America, little did we know, uh, was, was silent, too. But no, no such luck. No, look, I, I, I understand that. If this can be couched in nonpartisan terms, I think there's a greater chance of success here. But let's be real. People buy on emotion and oh, they yeah. justify on logic what they've already bought. So the whole fear mm -hmm. factor, this will be pigeonholed as a Republican effort unless somewhere along the way you either get prominent Democratic politicians to come out or state legislatures that are controlled by Democrats to come out and support this. Just my opinion. I Look, I don't. I don't live this like you do or breathe this every day. I just think that that's, I think people are tired of partisan politics. And I think the more uh, of a populist movement you can make this, the I'm greater the chances. I'm curious, Mark, with the rise in popularity that we're seeing of uh, the likes of Robert Kennedy Jr., a very prominent Democrat, have you gotten any conversations with him? or any of the other potential candidates for 2024? No, I have not. I would love to talk with Kennedy. I think he's a he's an interesting guy. I mean, I don't want to... I'm not like a lot of the conservatives that are getting sucked in by the guy. The guy's a leftist. He's a hard leftist. So he said some things that people on the right find appealing, and I think we got to be really careful of his overall politics and understand that. But I think I'd love to talk to him and see if we could get his support. I'm not against having support of folks that are on the left, but I'll be honest with you. I've talked to folks who are on the left that are totally in support of what we're doing. Some prominent folks on the left who shall remain nameless by their request. And what they say is, look, I would support it, but if I do, then I'm just going to get flamed by my side. They're going to attack me. They're going to you know, drive me out of the left. We have people way back when who supported it that told me that they just got trashed, their email list shrank, they got trashed in social media. And so there's a strong tribalism on the left that prevents the left from stepping outside of the lane. And so I think it's, you know, I hate to say this, but I think it's going to have to be a right wing conservative Republican effort down the line.
that makes, makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Now, look, I, I wish you success. I I am so thankful for you to come on and, and educate certainly me, if not our listeners. I can use all the education I can get. Ooh, um, okay. Where, really where, quick. Hold on, really okay, quick, because really we're quick. we're getting we're getting the sign, we're getting the the three I, minute warning from Benjamin. <laughs> what do you think? What is your what is your guess as to the next few states uh, that you think are going to pass the? Oh, you're going to make them go on record. I, I was giving them a pass, by the way. But okay, come on, <laughs> well, Mark. The, the next state is absolutely North Carolina. North Carolina, okay. we've already passed the House. We've actually done that a couple of years. Uh, we've got installed in the Senate in the past. Literally, as we speak, things are moving in the Senate. It's been tied up with their budget. They're still in session. They're one of the few uh, not year-round states that's still in session. So I expect that we're going to pass before the end of the summer in North Carolina. That'll become state number 21. Uh, Then I would say really actually for me kind of hard to predict what happens in the next cycle as you get into the next year. I'll have to look at that as we get late into the fall. We'll start to kind of prioritize states and predict what looks like it's going to move. But I say North Carolina is next. Well, and everybody listening and watching, oh, sorry, everybody listening and watching, go to conventionofstates.com. There you can see the states that have already passed. There's a great interactive map that shows what has passed, where the article, or should I say, uh, the petition is at in each of the 50 states. And you can actually see in real time the progress and where your state is at, uh, where you're listening and watching from, where is your state at in the process? Mark, last question real quick. Yeah. Oh, and you can it. sign the petition there. Go sign the petition, <laughs> conventionofstates.com. And another thing, Erica, is there anything else you'd like to say? Probably will come up to s- with something to interrupt you in a minute, for sure. Definitely. Um. <laughs> I don't even want to go there. Mark, quick one, first of all, thank you. But one quick question. So if a state legislature that passed the constitutional convention amendment or, or amendment, I don't know what the correct terminology is. It's called a resolution. Resolution. Thank you. If it flips to a Democrat at some point, can they rescind it? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, what you see is in, and this is a funny thing about saying there's going to be a runaway convention. Every state that's flipped to Democrat in the last few years has actually gone out and repealed all of their Article 5 applications. There are a bunch of them on record on a bunch of different subjects across the country over the last 400 years. The Dem states go in and they immediately repeal all their Article 5 applications. So, yeah, we have a rearguard action to fight, and this is one of the reasons it's so important, and our activists are engaged in elections all around the country making sure they protect Republican majorities in state legislatures. Well, my inner Jersey response is those rat bastards, but we have a big team in New Jersey and New York. So they, and they're all just like you. So I appreciate it. They're awesome. Well, um, we, uh, you know, we like a good fight and we generally win. Right? Yes. So, I mean, I'm, it's all about, it's all about this to guys. Folks, you have been listening to Mark Meckler, the president of convention of states. And this has been Mark, a fascinating educational and really great conversation. Where can everybody contact you again or where can they find out more about Convention of States? Eric, I was going to do that. Yep. Go to conventionofstates.com, <laughs> sign the petition, get involved. Most importantly, click the Take Action tab. It's great to listen. It's great to get educated like this, but being in the game is what counts. Conventionofstates.com or folks want to follow me personally day to day. Now that Musk is in charge of Twitter, I'm back on Twitter and they can follow me at Mark Meckler. Excellent. 
Mark, thank you for joining us. Folks, this has been fun, but we got to go. Thanks for being with us. I'm Robert Chernin of The People. And I'm Erica Reddick. We'll see you next week. Take care.